From the leafy streets of Springwood, Ohio, to the barred windows at 1428, we are Halloweenies. Welcome back, all you dreamers out there, to another episode of Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. You're probably wondering, wait a second, we just had a new nightmare. What are we doing back in your feed? Well, we got a special bonus episode. As we've been teasing on our socials, we talked to Nancy Thompson herself. Yes, Heather Langenkamp, Heather Elizabeth Anderson these days. And it was a really fun conversation. Heather and I got to talk for over an hour, actually, about just everything from her early days working with Francis Ford Coppola to her time in college when she got her job as Nancy on A Nightmare on Elm Street to all the sort of fears uh, or lack of fears actually going into New Nightmare. It was a really, really fun discussion. She's wonderful. As you saw on our socials, we actually got to meet her when she was in here in Chicago that following weekend. Great person. And I'm really, really excited for you to hear this interview finally, now that we've actually finished the Nancy legacy, the, the true Nancy legacy, because we've got the remake coming up. But, you know, when we think of Nancy, we think of Heather Langenkamp. And you're going to hear from her right now. The more she read, the more she realized what she had in her hands was nothing more or less than her life itself. That everything she had experienced and thought was bound within these pages. There was no movie. There was only her life. You got into Hollywood, you know, working as an extra with Francis Ford Coppola, and I and I wanted to know what were some of your earliest memories there. Yeah, it was such a uh, great introduction to filmmaking because um, Francis Ford Coppola was, I mean, such a master of, of his art form. And at that time, you know, he had so many movies under his belt already mm-hmm. that I admired. So um, he came to our town, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he uh, shot The Outsiders, and it was a it was a really, you know, everyone in town knew about it. It was extremely, um, you know, popular um, with all the young kids, like, to try to get near the sets and, and see all the actors at work. And they, they shot it in a lot of locations around town. And, uh, you know, they had to fend off all the teenagers, <laughs> that's for sure. But um, I remember really, really clearly more on Rumblefish, because that's where I actually had a speaking part, mm-hmm. and I got my SAG card on that film, but we shot at night, and, um, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola had just some things that he always did, and one of them was um, wet down the street, so before every take, or, you know, every two hours or so, they would wet down the street, so it had that glossy, kind of sparkling look, and it was just something that made his films, you know, when you look at them now as a body of work just some of those stylistic things. I noticed, you know, how it was, um, you know, everyone was, you know, really doing everything they could to to bring that style forward. Mm-hmm. And you realize it's something as small as wetting down the streets or, you know, having the lamps at a certain, you know, kind of uh, intensity. And and so a lot of it is behind the scenes and actors don't, don't get to really notice it. But... You know, I kind of did what I could to sit back and, and notice that. He also used, um, he was one of the first people to use video assist. So he had a kind of like an Airstream trailer, I think, a big 
trailer that he parked off the set, and he was watching, um, you know, the takes in the in the trailer. It was <laughs> it was pretty rare to see him kind of walking in the milieu of the actors and everybody getting ready for the shot. And he would often, you know, give his direction from there on a microphone. I think I'm remembering it properly because it was something that I thought was so interesting um, that, you know, he was able to have all this control of, of seeing what he wanted um, inside of his, inside of his trailer. So that was something that, you know, I had, I mean, I had never been on a film set before, so, but it just seemed really unique. And now, you know, you see that on films all the time. People, that director's rarely standing next to the camera operator, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like on Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, Wes Craven was right there, right behind the camera, and you looked at him the whole time. And um, and I just thought it was very interesting that uh, Francis Ford Coppola kind of had this one-step-removed way of, of, of directing some of his scenes. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of chance to interact with him you know, personally, but, you know, he's one of these very giant personalities and, and everyone around him who I did know, you know, there was kind of not, you know, just like the cult of Francis. I mean, everyone was just so devoted to him and devoted to him seeing his um, kind of, you know, visions come, come to fruition. And that's kind of rare now, you know, I mean, with our great directors, of course, you hear about it, but, in the fast-paced world of making TV and movies now, it's like everyone's just trying to get the job done as fast as possible. And so you really did notice how slowly things worked back then and how long it took to set up certain shots and how long they took to set up the camera and the dolly and the track and the lights and the watering down of the street. So, you know, it it was lots of waiting around and people complain about that. But if you, you know, have your eyes open... It's such a great place to learn about yeah. filmmaking, and it seems like you know, you know, especially given your history now with, um, you know, with AFX Studio and and just you know the connections you have with just all the makeup effects that you've been doing over the years. Did your interest at the time, you know, working especially working on these two films, do you do you, in hindsight do you feel like that's where you know your interest started, you know, becoming born with like the behind the scenes magic of it all, or were you at the time just still so focused on all right, I really want to be in acting? Um, do you did you have an interest at that time already to be behind the scenes? Well, I mean, I think everybody, like they say, like everyone wants to be a director. I think once you watch a director working, and and if you have any stories of your own that you you know want to make, you you you're kind of always watching the director, at least I am, and, mm-hmm. and then watching the actors. But I always wanted to be an actor. I mean, I, I never have given that up. And even though I do kind of work behind the scenes now, it's 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 more of a matter of, like, it was more of a matter of practicality and also being an aging actress. I mean, it's not that I didn't want to work. It's just, I think when you're a certain age in Hollywood, it's just really hard to work. Mm-hmm. And I think you can ask any of my co-stars who are female that, um, there's just a time when you you kind of have to realize you're not going to make a living acting. You just even now, if you're working all the time at the at the pay scales that they're offering actors, you know, it would be very hard to make a living purely as an actor these days. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you you know you know I like to work. I'm like I have a really strong like <laughs> German work ethic, and so. 
just the need to be working, you know, lured me to to work for my husband who, you know, had this really interesting business and career and and it was close enough to you know, being in front of the camera that it's it's always been exciting and I always you know, remind my husband, like, well, think about the actor in this, you know, think, think about the actor has to, like, endure if you're going to put this makeup on them. And, you know, I'm constantly, like, trying to remind everyone that there's a real person who's going to have to make your thing look great. And um, I'm always thinking of of the actor and, and how much I look forward to continuing acting. And as much as I love this whole world of makeup effects, it's never been, like, a very, like, strong interest of mine. I never yeah. wanted to do makeup. I never really um, was fascinated by it like so many people. But my, you know, my husband is and and together, you know, I've, I've learned so many facets of the industry. Well, when you're in, you know, post, um, the, you know, the, the Outsiders and Rumble Fish and, you know, you're at, even post Nickel Mountain, um, when you're at Stanford University, where was your head at then? Were you were you just mostly focused on academic studies, or did you still have like your foot in the door, like being like, all right, I still really want to chase, you know, Hollywood? Um, and this is roughly around the time that your approach for Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I had, um, you know, my whole life I had wanted to go to college, and yeah. and I didn't know if acting was going to pan out. So, but the summer before I went to college is when I did. Um, you know, Rumblefish. And so when I got to Stanford, I had met so many people in Hollywood and they said, oh, why don't you just fly down on the weekends or, you know, I have an audition for you for this, um, you know, John Hughes movie. Why don't you come on down? And so I flew back and forth between um, Stanford and L.A., you know, for about, you know, a couple of months when I got the part in Nickel Mountain. And then um, I went back to college after, you know, for a spring quarter. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I can go back and forth. I mean, Stanford has a really liberal policy about going in and out. And so <laughs> I was like, lucky me that I picked a college where I can leave for 10 weeks at a time and then come back. And um, and thank God, you know, it was faithful that I was able to, you know, do that. And I did it for about eight years, went back and forth, back oh, and wow. forth. And um, I always knew that I had to have a diploma. <laughs> I had to, like, <laughs> I couldn't have worked that hard and not had have something to proof, uh, you yeah. know, that I did it. So, um, yeah, after Nightmare on Elm Street, I went back to college. After um, Just the Ten of Us, I actually graduated during um, one of the mid-season breaks in Just the Ten of Us. <laughs> and um, I, every time I had, like, ten weeks, I would just say, I'm going to go back up, and I'm almost done. And luckily, I took some classes at UCLA that helped me graduate faster and when I got up to, when I was at school, you know, I was always taking the max number of units, like 20 or 22 units, which was, oh, you know, God. really, really hard. <laughs> but I knew that that was probably the only way that I would actually finish. So when I was up there, it was literally like, I'm in the library 24-7 getting that work done and um, just trying to get it all done and make, you know, kind of decent grades. And, you know, it was such a great getaway from Hollywood. It's, there's nothing that I like more than, you know, studying something I have no idea about. And mm-hmm. so I spent a lot of time, um, you know, studying literature, studying, po- you know, poetry, plays, um, you know, absurdist theater, like doing things that you would never do in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I think they always, those things have always helped me when I'm, you know, thinking about 
projects or thinking of ideas with my husband, like, you know, why don't we go back and think about, you know, something that we, you know, we've seen in literature or go look at this source and get oh, totally. ideas. So I think there's nothing that anybody can, uh, I mean, I would never be up in, in Palo Alto and go, God, I wish I was in LA going on auditions. I mean, <laughs> if anything, I was like, I wish I could get cast in a play up here. It'd be so much fun. But <laughs> it was usually that I was too busy and, um, I didn't get to experience college life like as much as I would have wanted to, because I just did go in overdrive every time I was well, up there. Sounds like it. I mean, so when, when, when you get, a night on Elm Street, were you still enrolled in classes at the time or was it a, between a break? Like, did you have to be like, all right, like I got to finish this one course or I'll leave and come back and finish this course. I mean, I don't even know how you'd yeah, be able to even focus. I think what <laughs> happened is, um, yeah, so I was, I was in school and so the, the, I think the quarter ends like March 15th or March 30th around, yeah, there, around right. Easter. And I think I had, um, I had decided to, yeah, I think I had gotten the part in Nightmare on Elm Street. So I decided to just take off the whole spring and um, and then the movie didn't really start until June, so I was kind of antsy, like waiting around for it to start. But um, you know, it was fine. I just you know I, I took acting classes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was yeah. always like doing stuff and auditioning for other projects too. So um, yeah, it was sometimes I didn't time it right, but I did. I was in school right before I did Nightmare, and um, and. I mean, it was a way that Wes and I always like love to communicate too, because he had been a college professor. Totally, and, yeah. And um, and and I just kind of understood who he was because I had, you know, experienced these you know guys that were kind of like him when I was in school. Well, what were your expectations going into this? I mean, because like New Line really hadn't been established yet. Like Wes hadn't really broken through into the mainstream so much. Like, were you? Um, were you worried going into like a horror movie? Um, because I, I had read that you weren't like the biggest fan of horror movies also. So it was kind of like, was it more of just like, were you just curious? Like what was, what was going through your mind at the time? Well, I mean, you know, frankly, yeah, I didn't ever go see horror movies except in sixth grade. I saw burnt offerings and <laughs> I, I remember realizing like, okay, that really scared me. I don't think I'll do that anymore because <laughs> yeah. it was just, you know, spooky and it, it's hard to sleep, you know, at night, and I just, I thought, that's probably not what I want to do, but I did love, you know, of course, I loved The Shining, and I loved, oh, gosh, um, Altered States, and, like, I liked, um, you know, I went to some movies that I would consider kind of horror-ish, but I remember not really, I just didn't really get that it was going to be, I mean, I knew it was going to be a violent movie, I knew it was violent, but I didn't really understand that it was what a horror movie was. I mean, it sounds kind of strange, but I, the, the genre itself wasn't so well established that it mm-hmm. had so, like, I didn't think it was like The Exorcist, you know, and I didn't think it was like, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't put it in the same category as that because to me, it was just teenagers, you know, who mm-hmm. just have this trippy dream experience and there's like horrible ways you die kind of thing. But I never saw the makeup before, so... I didn't really understand that Freddie was going to have this persona. So reading the script, I had no idea, like, what the final product was going to be. And I kind of got glimpses of it during dailies, watching it like, oh, like, this is kind of a supernatural. Yeah. Oh, this is really scary. <laughs> oh, my God, look what happened to Tina. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 on the page, it just doesn't look anything like it does on 
in the final product. And so when I read it on the page, I just thought it was kind of like a teen supernatural, like, thriller with some death thrown in there. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, an adventure. I mean, it seemed really like this cool adventure of this girl setting booby traps. I mean, to me, it, does, yeah. it was more like an adventure thriller with some death in there rather than this, you know, spooky horror movie with Freddy Krueger as the star. So, you know, what it became was not probably what I was imagining in my own, you know, in my own head. Yeah, that's that's what I keep going back to because it's so it seems so unprecedented because it's it's such a it's so emblematic of the 80s too because it was so imaginative and it's so um i mean obviously dreamy because of <laughs> it takes place in dreams but um there's yeah there there it's a spectacle and i don't think like i don't you're right like i don't think up until then like the genre really had had that type of spectacle before and if there was it was so dark and macabre whereas this was just it was fantastical in a way and so, I, yeah, I imagine, like, I mean, the surprise, I mean, you must have been just as surprised watching the movie when it unfolded and premiered, because, I, I, I mean, it's so easy now to look back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, Freddy Krueger, this is, the, you know, this is the style, this is the aesthetic. But, I mean, did you have any sense filming it at the time that of the, the type of quality, or not the quality, but, like, this the sort of mood and cadence for the film? Like, did you know it was going to have that sort of dreamy quality, or did you think it was going to be, like, more visceral? No, I mean, I just had no idea, because I didn't know what Wes Craven was in his mind's eye. I just never, I only could take, like, take away what I saw at dailies, which one was just really beautiful, bright, and like open and bright. It wasn't dark, you know, it was, it was, there was like happy colors mm-hmm. and, you know, and we're in the daylight half the time and, and the dreams are so mysterious, but the other parts, are very like kind of normal storytelling. There's a lot of normal everyday kind of storytelling in there. And, um, you know, Freddie isn't in the movie very much. And no, so, not. um, you know, to see the final product and have Freddie like really like pop as mm-hmm. this, as this figure, you know, I think has everything to do with Robert England and, and, and Wes Craven just putting, putting together a personality that people just, freaked out over, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, it was Freddie that was just so unique and, um, you know, hence the 10 movies that have been made about Freddy Krueger, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you put so, a lot of your own soul into the role and, but did you, did you happen to take any inspiration, um, from maybe other final girls for, uh, in other horror movies or, um, or any other, you know, you said that, you know, you lean a lot on literature and you know, your studies, like, were there any you know, potential protagonists that you had been reading in books or plays that you might have been leaning on? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think strong women in literature, like, happen all the time. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can go back you know, to any of the goddesses on Mount Olympus. You know, they're pretty <laughs> kick-ass and do a lot of damage if they're angry. But um, I've never um, really... You know, if anything, I would say, like, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz is, like, the one character that I always feel like I would want to be if I could be anybody, because I felt like that was my favorite movie as a kid, and watching her kind of in this very sweet kind of strong way, and it also respond to this very supernatural and strange series of events in her own life, and come out the winner, and... um to me, Nightmare on Elm Street was probably, um, I mean, I probably would have used Dorothy as one of my yeah. 
touchstones for who I wanted to be most back then. And um, just, it's, she's so incredible in that part. And yeah. But I didn't see a lot of movies. I mean, I just, I wasn't... Um, this wasn't the same kind of movie culture and television culture that we have now. So, yeah. I mean, like, you know, Little House on the Prairie, I mean, <laughs> probably was the one show I watched religiously. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, those, those girls were so strong in that show. And, you know, I just, you know, I just always have liked people who have to survive in really terrible circumstances. So, yeah. Um, any kind of, you know, and then, you know, there were the movies like Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure. They always had, like, really tough people getting through, like, these terrible disasters. And um, those two are, like, some of my favorite movies when I was, you know, a teenager. So I can say probably all of those kind of yeah. added up to be um, part of my thinking in creating Nancy. And I could totally see the Dorothy thing, because, I mean, never once, really, in Wizard of Oz do you ever feel as if she doesn't have some sort of sense of agency for herself. Like, you get the sense that, like, she's usually the one that's pretty much, like, kind of dictating, like, where, you know, whatever, whoever she meets, she has some sort of, like, strong constitution about her. Um, and I can totally see that in Nancy, um, for sure. And... Um, she's such a perfect, and I think that's the reason why she's such a perfect foil for Freddie. And, you know, one of your, one of the, one of the quotes I really love, um, that you had in, um, the Never Sleep Again book was you said that there would be no Freddie without Nancy, um, in that first movie. And I wanted to know if like, if you could digress on that quote just a little bit and, and what you really meant by that. Well, I mean, I really believe that you can't just have an evil character um, existing in a vacuum. I mean, it has to have something to work against and to compare itself to. And I think Freddie has to have a very powerful figure, um, you know, battling him so that he can show all of the aspects of his personality and, in fighting him, Nancy shows all of the aspects of her personality. And so the more you give, the more you get, kind of. And I I know that Robert and I always, um, you know, we always felt very strongly that what makes that movie so great is that both of them are really fighting their hardest to get what they want. Mm-hmm. And, and he wants to, um, you know, kill all these children. And she wants to save them all. And so they both are going at it. And, you know, I think Freddie thinks it's going to be a lot easier than it actually turns out to be. And Nancy thinks it's, you know, a lot harder than she thought it was going to be. And so it's, you know, they both have a mission and they're opposing missions. And so, like I always said, it could be any teenager if they have that kind of will and drive and persistence could have succeeded in that role. I feel like that you had to have that sense of um, determination to win, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it it really was a battle. And, and if I hadn't been, you know, if I didn't act as strong as I tried to, he wouldn't have had anybody to like flex his muscles against, I think, and, or his wit, you know, and that's what happens later on is that his, his wit starts to get into the act and, and he has to um, use that as well, you know, a sense of humor. And that's, you know, something that came after nightmare one, I think. Well, after nightmare, I mean, how shocked were you 
when, well, I guess there's, this is two part, but were you shocked when, um, you weren't called back for nightmare two? And then also how shocked were you when you found out that you died in three? <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I still, even today, I there's I don't know what happens with me. I just always suppress it against my head. But I always forget you die at the <laughs> end of three. Um, it, so how shocked were you when you read that? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I really so you know I didn't really know what a sequel was. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know in in television you would have this sequel where like there was a big cliffhanger and then you know Brady Bunch would like in the Grand Canyon you had this cliffhanger like what was going to happen because Bobby was lost and those kind of sequels were in television were pretty common. But the idea of a sequel in films was not common. And when I heard that Bob Shea was going to make another nightmare, I knew immediately that it was going to be with Freddie and not me. I mean, I knew that mm-hmm. um, his, you know, I guess I probably asked, like, what's the concept? And he's like, well, the house, you know, the house is, is what holds Freddie inside these walls is the, the thing that actually brings him um, out is is the house itself, and that made a lot of sense to me. And I thought, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And um, I didn't realize that you know people make careers off of sequels at this point. So, mm-hmm. um, and I thought Nancy's story was you know over and done enough. You know, it didn't have to. She didn't have to come back. But then when um, when Wes called me and said that he wanted to write a version of Nightmare Three where I'm once again back in the story as Nancy and that I've grown up and I've endured those terrible teenage years. And now I'm someone who tries to help kids who, um, you know, are supposedly committing, trying to commit suicide, but not succeeding. And anyway, that whole storyline I just thought was really great. And, um, I do feel like her death is so important. And when I read about, when I read it, you know, I really felt like, you're reading about a Greek hero, you know, dying on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like it's it's something that has to happen for the the evil to actually properly express itself, and and someone needs to be sacrificed to get the you know get the devil out. You know, and I think Nancy was a perfect person for that, and she does sacrifice herself so that the young people can live, which is really a metaphor for our the way it should be in our generation is that the older people should be willing to die for the younger people. And um, I think it's really noble when that happens. And I think it's a great story point when that happens, if the young person is sacrificed, then you feel like, Oh, you know, the world is so terrible. I know there's some kind of order to it that I think made a lot of sense. And it let those young kids, you know, be free of Freddie for a small period of time. And, have peace. And in that to me was like a really great way for Nancy to end. And, yeah. um, yeah, a lot of people were really saddened by it. And, um, I think nobody wants to admit that, you know, you have to sacrifice sometimes for the greater good, I guess. I don't know, but, <laughs> um, she was tricked too, you know, she was yeah. tricked by Freddie and that makes people really upset that she didn't die like hand-to-hand battle. It was more like she was tricked. And um, and he used, like, the one thing that softened her, which was her dad, you know, and, yeah. and got her in the end by tricking her. So that upsets a lot of people. And, you know, that's great. If a story can make you feel that 
strongly. Like, that's so wonderful. You know, it's so hard to feel anything these days that I'm like, yay, some people have emotions still. You guys, you know, it's been nicer lately. And in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row. And I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up. And so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always going to have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BADMOVIES50 at FactorMeals.com slash BADMOVIES50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And then, and there's such a growth to the character too. Like what I always forget is that it's only, it was only like three years after the original one. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. you know, you're a high schooler and then, you know, an adult Suddenly. and then with, with Craig was like, so was that behind the scenes, like interesting for you just to be like, well, I guess I could play Nancy as an adult now. I mean, it's, you know, two movies later. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you always want to play an adult when you're, yeah. you know, when you're an actor. You hate playing kids. I mean, you're always playing kids, always playing kids. And then suddenly, oh, my God, I get to play an adult. And it's very weird And because at that age, you know, 23 or however old I was, 20, 22 or 23, um, you feel like a grown-up. But when I see it on film now, I think, oh, my gosh, I just look like such a baby. I wish there had been a little bit less... Um, like trying to make her look so mature. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of like trying to pick wardrobe that made me look more <laughs> mature than I was. And that was the director's choice. I didn't think it needed to go that far. Yeah, I think she could have been, you know, she easily could have been a graduate student. Totally. Dream psychology without being a professional, you know? Yeah. And uh, she could have had the same authority, I feel like. Yeah. But um, it worked and people love that movie so much that I'm not going to like say anything bad about Nancy because people love it. Oh, totally. Yeah. And also like ages, I think like there's, there is really no age in these movies. I mean, you have John Saxon who, who literally looks 50 and he's looked 50 for the past 35 years. I think it's just the magic of that (laughs) series. Um, what was the most difficult effect scene for you? I mean, because there's, there's so many experimental, um, effects going on, especially in that original one. Were there any um, situations where you're like, uh, I don't know if I want to, like, I don't know if I want to dip my foot in this weird stuff? Well, I mean, I guess physically demanding scenes were actually, oh, every movie had their version of it. I know that, um, like, oh, goodness, in three, that window, everything exploding Mm -hmm. scene where, you know, right before Freddie kills me, you know, those were all very technical scenes. The scene with the big Freddy that eats Patricia Arquette, like that big phallic monster, you know, that yeah. thing. Um, that was a very, very tough scene to do. And um, they were always experimenting. I mean, that's why people love these movies. They were trying things for the first time in every single nightmare that we did. We were having visual effects people say, we're going to superimpose you falling through the chair and it never been done, locking off the camera. You know, so those gags in Nightmare 3 
I remember thinking, this is incredible that they're trying this on such a kind of independent, low-budge movie, and yet Bob Shea knew that that's what was going to make the fans love all that new, anything new he could show them. He always, you know, fitted in somehow. And, I mean, there were so many grueling scenes. I mean, the bathtub scene was grueling just because he had to be in water, and it was very tough. Um and Nightmare 7, like, sliding down this one slide that looked like mm-hmm. the sheets inside the bed. Like, that I remember being very painful. And running around the dungeon, you know, with, you know, sag, I mean, sopping wet pajamas. Like, <laughs> they all are difficult in their own way. The fight with Freddy with the fire and the yeah. eels and that whole thing. That was a very tough fight. And, I mean, I just loved every one of those scenes so much. <laughs> like, I, I, I could do those every day. Yeah. I just thought they were so much fun and I really love doing them. Well, when Nightmare, well, New Nightmare came along, were you generally surprised? And especially it's, you know, the whole meta narrative of it, was that, was that something that Wes had already discussed with you previously? Um, or did he kind of just have like this script and go, Hey, here, this is, you know, here I am with uh, <laughs> this. Yeah. He didn't pop the script on my, yeah, <laughs> at my doorstep. And I thought, wow, this is, so cool, you mm-hmm. know, and this is so interesting, but I really didn't like the idea of having to play myself. I was like, couldn't I just be another actress? Like, <laughs> do I have to use my name? Do I have to do that? And he's like, it's the only way it'll work. And I'm playing myself and Robert's playing himself. And, you know, it's the only way that this idea works is if we all just do it. And, um, you know, I thought like, oh, it would, it would, it would strip me of my, you know, personal anonymity I think it's what I thought it was going to happen but it didn't happen and um you know your name is kind of a public thing once you decide to be an actor so I guess I just kind of set up a little wall in my brain like oh that's Heather Langenkamp from the Nightmare movie and I can still be myself and you know I go by my married name most of the time now anyway so um that Heather Langenkamp seems kind of far away yeah yeah well, when earlier drafts, did you have, was it, you know, even closer to, you know, your true self? Um, you know, I know that there are certain subplots that were taken out, um, like the nanny and stalker um, subplot was taken. How, wait, how, first off, how late into the process was that taken out? Because um, I know that that was originally supposed to be like a major subplot within that movie. Um, because it was so personal, did did you have like a lot of conversations with Wes being like, all right, I'm not comfortable doing this scene or this narrative. Um, can we take out this that? What was the process with what was real? I, was not? <laughs> in general, it, you know, I don't think the script changed much from the way we see it. Um, I know that there was some more um, written about my the stalker element of that screenplay and it didn't really work in the story as much yeah. as I think I thought it was going to work. It, in the script, it seemed uh, that we used that device kind of as a red herring more and it was pretty interesting, but I think there was just so much to pack into the time that they got rid of a lot of that, but that wasn't because I didn't want it. I can't remember. The only thing I didn't want is I didn't want to talk about any of my relatives mm. um, in in the movie. So I didn't want to say like, my mother did this, my father did this because I realized like, well, they, they're not signing up for this. So I don't want anybody who sees it to go to my dad later and go, that was weird when she said my dad, you know, (laughs) 
beat me or whatever. You know, my mom (laughs) died in a mental hospital. I just didn't want to have any, any lines that reflected my family because David, my husband was kind of disturbed that he was already in it. And I knew Mm -hmm. if he was disturbed, then, you know, what about my other family? I don't want everyone to be disturbed. So um, I tried to limit any mentions of like my extended family as much as I could. And, you know, David, luckily he forgave me for doing it. And it's it's so before the internet too. So it's like, I mean, I'm looking back and like when I couldn't just go online and look at like, you know, facts or like Wikipedia or, you know, any of the other things that you could just confirm things. So I imagine there is that sort of fear of like, well, are people just going to take this as fact because they're seeing it in a movie and, and it's, you know, they're using real names and, and whatnot. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's like a total. But I mean, I mean, I, yeah, it was, I feel like if the audience isn't smart enough to understand that even if, even if it's my real name, it's still a fiction, Yeah, yeah. you know, then, then they've got a long way to go. I mean, it's not a documentary. It was, no, you know, no. a, it was a fiction. So I, 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 I really have a lot of faith in my audience's intelligence. So yeah. I haven't had too many people, you know, wonder why I'm not married to David Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did, uh, you know, working with Miko Hughes, uh, was that, was it harder to work with like child actors? Um, and you know, was it, was that something that was like a, a totally new experience at the time, um, for you, um, going into this role? I mean, w- w- you know, what was the experience there? Well, you know, my husband had worked with Miko on Pet Cemetery, so yeah. I had met him when he was three years old. And, um, you know, that was a very tough shoot for my husband because they had to make him do all sorts of really horrible things. <laughs> and, um, you know, biting, you know, Fred Quinn's leg and, you know, pulling guts out of, you know, it was bad. And so my husband never recovered from that because he just felt so responsible. And um, when I said, oh, I'm going to work with Miko, it's going to be my son, we both were like, Oh no, we're finally getting payback. <laughs> and luckily, you know, I get along so well with kids. I just really love acting with kids. I find that um something else comes out in you like when you are playing a mother and of a real child and and it's wonderful. It adds a totally different dimension to you as a person and your acting. And I find myself able to really throw myself into scenes with a, with a kid that it's harder to do with an adult. I mean, the kids are just so, they're just really there, you mm-hmm. know. They're in that world 100%, and um, nothing's holding them back. And so you feel more protective. You feel more motherly. You feel more concerned. And so I found that I like my acting performance in Nightmare 7 the most because yeah. I really feel like that aspect of me, which is really a part of me, um, was able to shine and actually do things that I've never been able to do before. Well, you know, speaking of, um, of the more family, family element, uh, to nightmare seven, do you feel that looking back, especially with just the, you know, all the sequels that have happened, even those that, that, that you weren't a part of, is there a family element to the actual franchise itself? I mean, especially, I mean, you're going to go, you're going to be going to the convention this weekend. Have you, you know, become friendly with even stars that were in like the sequels um, that you might not have actually put on the side? Oh yeah. I have to say that, I mean, yeah, we do have a huge family and um, I don't know if it's the same with other movies that have lots of sequels, but I'd say that um, we are a giant extended family now. And in fact, the nightmare three, crew is getting together to do a staged reading of 
Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 at the Whiskey on oh. September 8th, and we're all going to um, read our parts, and Robert's going to be there too. So it's going to be pretty amazing. It's Ira Hyden's idea, and um, so we're looking really forward to that because, one, we love being together, but two is is that script is so good and people love the lines in that script. I mean, there's so many great lines. And um, so now that we're all older and wiser, it's going to be kind of fun to see us uh, reading this script out loud. Well, does it feel like, you know, with never, nothing's ever really over, I guess, but you know, with this new nightmare at the time and even now, does that really feel like the definitive ending for you? It definitely did feel like the ending. I mean, I remember just like sobbing uncontrollably for yeah. days after it was over because I did feel like it was done and um, it was over. And I, I mean, I knew somebody could like resurrect the story, you know, but it wouldn't be the same and it wouldn't have been as good as that story, I don't think. I mean, as hard as they were going to try, I just don't know if you could beat Nightmare 7 for originality and and oh, yeah. interest. So I did feel like it was the end, and um, yeah, I mean, it was very bittersweet, and know that I probably wouldn't play Nancy again. Were you um, were you ever in talks and discussions for Freddy versus Jason to like be involved in some sort of capacity? No, I never was. I mean, they never really bring Nancy into these into these. It, that that seems to me to be something that Wes really felt strongly about, but I don't Mm -hmm. find that other producers and filmmakers have that same feeling. And I mean, even Bob Shea, I don't think he ever pictured it like that in, in his marketing or his plans for the franchise. He, he seemed to be pretty much just like a Freddie guy and, and, and promoted Freddie as much as he could. So I have to say, and only in the last maybe 10 years, maybe when, um, you know, I've really seen a resurgence of Nancy's, Popularity because, one, I mean, I've really, you know, been thinking really hard about it yeah. and, and and doing interviews like this and talking about Nancy because I do know that the fans, they have really strong feelings about their feelings about Nancy, but they're not really validated by the pop culture narrative. like, mm-hmm. And so they have to kind of come upon it themselves and, like, make these realizations themselves. And... You know, I have to say the first people who actually made realizations about their love of Nancy who came to me and really talked about it were a lot of gay men who, like, had had envisioned Nancy as this kind of role model for them in their teens and someone that they envisioned as the kind of person that faced their fear of, you know, whatever they had to face. And, um, and I realized at that time, that was probably in the 90s, that that feeling probably extended over a, a much wider range of people too. And, um, and lo and behold, you know, as I meet people around the world, uh, I'm always really pleasantly surprised at how deeply people kind of hold Nancy to their heart. Like it's, it's really sweet just how much people um, use Nancy as a personal inspiration or a personal touchstone for their own teenage years when things are so tough hard you know things are just so hard for kids oh totally i mean and that and that must have been the genesis for the most part of i am nancy right i mean is that yeah so that was the genesis yeah. i mean i was just really <laughs> tired of knowing you know i just was really tired of not feeling as much love as i 
as I knew was out there, but also that I knew Robert was receiving. And it was more of like, I was like the bratty stepchild, (laughs) (laughs) like wanting to get something, you know, make a point, you know, and, and it was, it kind of came from more of a, like, almost like a petulant, like, I'm just really tired of this always being brushed over, you know, and, you know, he is only in the movie for six minutes, you know, like this, there's understanding, like, what do I have to do? <laughs> and um, and lo and behold, you know, once I started focusing on that kind of a message, so many people were receptive to it, and I now feel like I'm so gratified because um, I think Wes's creation, you know, Nancy Thompson, is getting a lot of... Um, like a lot of love, you yeah. know, from from people who who respect the films. Well, I actually wanted to uh, to talk about that just for a second because you know one of the things that really has been kind of sticking out to me lately is there's so there's such an easy way to rewrite history, you know, and I think that uh, one of the biggest complaints that a lot of critics have had lately is that there's been so many um, writers and critics out there who just don't look past like. 2000s or the 90s sometimes and i see it all the time even with promotion stuff like i mean even um you know like blumhouse just announced uh they're doing like a second uh black christmas remake and there was a lot of um you know there was a it was a big point of contention in the horror community because one of the press releases was just like well um you know but the killer is about to discover that this generation's young women aren't willing to become hapless victims and i just was like <laughs> wait what like what about you know like you know nancy Lori, you know like susan and like I mean, there's so many you know characters out there and do you do you think that's a misread on on, on a lot of the characters in the 70s and 80s or do you think that, that oh, they i were totally think it's a, i think it's such a misread but also it's like it, it's this really diabolical way of keeping the hapless like female in the dialogue mm-hmm. so you can't say um boy do we miss those hapless females like you know <laughs> running around naked and getting axe murdered you know they can't say that though that's really what they do miss yeah. and so they set it up as like a straw man almost like um you know we don't have to worry about those, you know, or, or we're going to glorify the the final girls, you know, or we're going to show you how strong a girl can be. But in the back of that statement is because what we all really like to see is the other thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think the, I think the love of this, you know, I think you could call it sadistic female torturing that, you know, a lot of, and and males too like the, a lot of that that you see in modern shows tries to kind of gloss it over with this idea that there's a like a really strong woman at the at the at the head of it just to kind of make everything else okay mm-hmm. and i see right through it i mean yeah. i work you know i work on a show that you know um i have to say actually the women in the American Horror Story are all pretty, pretty kick-ass women, yeah. and 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 I love that about it. But there's also, you know, littered for the seasons that we've been working on it, littered with other male and female characters who aren't strong and final girls. So it's like the the genre wouldn't exist without that exploitation of 
of men and women who are weak and helpless getting murdered by a killer. Like, the, 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 the genre just wouldn't exist without those yeah. people. And yet we feel so guilty about it or something in our consciousness that we have to always, like, make a statement that we're we're getting away from all that. But they're not. They're still doing it. And, and that's what people love to see. I mean, when I go to the horror conventions and you see the film festivals that are down in the ballroom at the night, it's more sadistic. It's more gory. It's more slasher. It's more than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And it's it's every taboo that you can break, break it. And it's glorification of, you know, all this, um, you know, this movie making style that Wes, you know, whether he likes it or not, you know, started it, you know, and all those filmmakers who chainsawed or bludgeoned women to death or whatever, they, they did start it. And, um, and, we still are like really enjoy it or else people wouldn't make those movies. I mean, people really enjoy watching victims get brutally murdered and I can't explain it, but they somehow like have to make these statements like, you know, we've got this strong teenager over here, you know, like mm-hmm. as a foil, to all this other stuff that's going on. And to me, it's just kind of a like window dressing. Yeah. Um, it, they, they're going to get their cool, demonic kill in somehow we're <laughs> gonna figure yeah. it out yeah well you know with it's politically correct to pretend that we all want final girls for every movie but we really don't that's the truth is that everybody really wants to see a few tinas die in bed while having sex you know uh, you know before nancy saves the day like everybody really wants to see some of that grody slasher stuff mm-hmm and then we can like redeem our movie by having like a noble heroine or a noble hero at the end like fight the bad guy but i think everyone's paying their money actually to see the other sometimes i i totally agree and i and i wonder with it being sold as you know the hero up front what that what that's you know how on the long run how how long that pays off cuz i mean like going into you know for example like with last year's halloween um, it was, you know, you have, you know, Laurie Strode coming back and it was, it was actually kind of interesting to see how, um, the character of Laurie Strode was actually marketed almost even more than, um, Michael, you know, himself. Right. And, yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's interesting, um, kind of twist to it. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you still need to have the quote unquote, like hapless victim before it to get to Laurie so that you actually have that sort of like that sense of terror, that sense of suspense and to. Yeah. Dis- and, and the sense of like the, 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 the ultimate possible price. Yeah. Like, yeah. If he's going to kill you with, a, you know, a dull pencil, you know, who cares if she, if, if she's prepared to kill him, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if his, if, the yeah the havoc he wreaks isn't really that bad you know we don't really care about the hero that much either so in a way because we expect so much of the heroes now it's like we almost have to have like really over the top crazy amounts of violence mm-hmm. so that that superhero can actually you know weigh against something that's really bad and it's really, it's such a, um, you know, we don't want to admit how depraved our imaginations have become, you know, that's the truth. Well, I think this, I think this series for, certainly uh, shows that. 
You've stated recently that you'd love to come back to the series. And, you know, I wanted to know, you know, what would you like to see happen if it's revived again? And um, how would you want to see Nancy come back? Would you want it like a direct sequel to one? Like kind of what they did with Halloween last year? Or would you want to, you know, come back as like an anti-dream spirit? Like how do, how do you imagine it? You know, I've heard so many people pitch their ideas to me that I, I don't, I, you know, I just don't really, I don't know how they could do it. And I don't know <laughs> how it would come about. I just don't know. And I don't have any preferences. But, um, I mean, it's something that would be so fascinating and, interesting, but I literally don't have any opinions about it because part of me doesn't want to get my hopes up that something like that would happen, but also it seems unlikely. I just feel like the stories are just so hard to conjure. Like, I just can't figure it out. So I don't have any particular way that I would think Nancy should come back. But, I mean, I know what people are thinking about him. I've met 150 people who say they have like story ideas. Yeah, so it's it, it, obviously like on everyone's mind. Uh, and finally, you know, now that you know it's uh, you know you've gone through so many horror movies, you've, you you know you've experienced so many horror movies. I imagine there is you know more of a love for the genre now than you know when you first got into it. What would you say after all this time has been? You know, what's your favorite horror movie? What's the thing that ultimately scares you? You know, I'm, you know, I have to say it's from when I was a little child. I really like horror movies that are take place like in more wildernessy kinds of, um, like I'm not as into the how ha- you know, scary haunted houses and stuff. I really like, you know, uh, like the descent, like things where people are in nature and they have absolutely no way of knowing what's coming next. And they're, they're not equipped to be out there and they don't know what's around the corner. And I just love anything that the sense of suspense of what's going to happen is so like, I don't know, like bone crushing. And then to me, that is the scariest thing. I think all of us, if you've ever spent any time out in nature and you're by yourself, it's like, there's this moment when you're so afraid, you don't know how you're going to live through the night. And, and, I feel like those are the movies that always speak to me the most. Oh, ditto. <laughs> ditto. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, this has been an absolute joy. And I'm sure we'll speak again someday. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, I, I've done a lot of these interviews for both Halloweenies and Losers Club, and I got to say, I was totally charmed. I was absolutely charmed. And we actually stayed in touch a little bit afterwards, and uh, she actually sent me music from her daughter, Eve Adams amazing amazing singer songwriter um just been listening to her, her album in hell nonstop actually so um we're going to be playing a few of her tracks in the upcoming episodes and probably promoting a lot of the mer music on our socials so definitely keep an eye for that uh but also keep an eye for the future because we're not over yet in uh, springwood we still got freddy versus jason as i mentioned before and that's gonna be dropping this month and then we also have <laughs> uh, the 2010 remake uh, that's going to be dropping in october for spooky season and uh also yeah, we're going to trudge through all the Freddy's Nightmares since uh, one of our constant listeners managed to send it to us. So all episodes are going to be trying to, you know, go through those. And we're not going to promise anything for Christmas because we, you know, how that turned out last year. We promised Black Christmas and, well, that didn't really happen. But <laughs> we're going to try to do something. We're definitely going to try to do something. We don't want to leave you empty handed on Christmas with uh, just lumps of coal. Not that we really did that last year. Let's be honest. We give you a lot of content. We don't want to make any promises. But we also want to tease that we'll probably be doing something so we don't leave you empty-handed on whatever you celebrate. But until then, whatever you do, to quote the great Heather Langenkamp herself, don't 
fall asleep. We'll see you in your dreams. <laughs> Believe in my dreams.